Listeners, it's Sam here again, and just the usual shout out for our brilliant sponsors before this week's show. Paces Ahead have courses for the start of 2024, and listeners, here's a possible sweetener for you. I will be there at their first course of 2024. That's the 16th to the 19th of January. Please do come along and say hi if you catch me. It would be great to meet some of you if you're there. But there is also a course the following week from the 20th to the 23rd of January for those of you sitting in the first diet of 2024. Not only that, but they also have courses lined up for May as well. The 20th to the 23rd of May and the 28th to the 31st of May. I highly recommend booking on early to avoid disappointment. They very regularly get oversubscribed. If you can't make a course though, past tests have got you covered with their market-leading online revision paces resource. I think most pacer sitters would agree this is more or less essential to have to complement your ward-based preparation. So to get access, just click any of the links in the show notes labelled past test. But enough on that for now, let's get started on this week's episode. Welcome back, pace sitters. Dr. Sam Williams here again, back with part two of our renal transplant episode, where I was joined by Dr. Jim Moriarty, consultant nephrologist at Gloucester Hospital's NHS Trust, and Dr. Ravathi Jane, who has just finished her training in renal medicine. Last time round, we covered the in-depth examination of these patients as they might be presented in a station one. And we also talked about the approach to presenting these patients back to the examiners. This episode looks more at the investigations, management, and we answer a ton of common examiner questions. And then right at the end, we have our very first head-to-head quiz the consultant with RJ answering questions on rabbits and Jim on the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But before that, I started off by asking RJ how you would investigate a patient with a renal transplant. to say about this question is that it's usually quite universal in the terms of what blood test you're going to do and you can usually justify the most common blood test you know this isn't where your money's going to be so I would keep this brief but obviously you would want to do a full blood count um, because anemia is a complication of CKD but also can be a complication of immunosuppression and um, you will want to do electrolytes because in a patient with a transplant you you know the only way of knowing what how the transplant functioning is by looking at their urea and their electrolytes and then performing a bone profile looking at their calcium and phosphate again because that will depend on what level of renal function that you have you can say you would do a PTH but we tend to not do that acutely and so um, it's in my mind, less important. But if they push you on that in terms of other blood tests that you might want to do, then you can talk about doing vitamin D and, and uh, parathyroid hormone. And we're going to talk about that, I know, a little bit later on. 
Um, and yes, if you've picked up that the patient is diabetic, then I would ask for an HbA1c. Specifically in terms of a renal transplant recipient, uh, you would usually ask for a transplant ultrasound with resistive indices, which uh, essentially, if you've not done a renal job before, is really looking at the blood supply in the renal artery of the transplant and then a couple of other things which we mentioned before the record, important to mention as well. If you found evidence of possible tacrolimus use or CNI use, taking trough levels of those. But I guess that's dependent on whether or not those signs are actually relevant during the examination. And then one thing which I had seen during just my research for this episode is uh, a renal biopsy. Now, obviously, that's a procedure which is done in the workup for patients Um with end-stage renal disease, but how often is this done in the context of a patient with an existing transplant? So um, renal biopsy is a really important part of the workup for acute graft dysfunction. And having been through all the, the bits and bobs that RJ just mentioned, you know, good history and examination, is the transplant hot and tender? Are they, if they feel really ill, if they stop taking the immunosuppression, those sorts of things may give you a clue that this is acute rejection. Uh, but often it can be a bit more subtle than that. And so a kidney biopsy... Um, at a fairly early stage, having ruled out the very obvious things you would do for anyone with acute kidney injury uh, will probably be part of your workup. Uh, and so acutely, you'd be looking for any signs of rejection, which you'd treat with uh, increased uh, immunosuppression. And there are some other things that you might see as well. So there are various kind of viral type issues, especially BK virus, uh, which can manifest as a worsening kidney function, often seen in early post-transplant um, stages uh, when people are on still quite big doses of immunosuppression or a little bit further down the line you may see evidence of kind of this thing we call chronic chronic allograft nephropathy which is a bit of a sort of dustbin diagnosis really a lot of things are included in there uh, so there may be some immunological chronic rejection in there there may be some drug effects from tacrolimus and then or the nephrotoxicity that can be associated with calcineurin inhibitors um or there may be recurrent disease in, 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 in the transplant. So early on, you're certainly looking for rejection, possibly some viral infection. Later on, you're still thinking about rejection, but thinking about chronic disease in the kidney that may not be treatable or may require some uh, changes to transplant immunosuppression to keep it working as long as it will. Perfect. And then moving on to the sort of examiner questions after having discussed the um, initial workup to a patient with a renal transplant presenting to hospital. Some of the common examiner questions we're going to be covering um, often starts off with something very broad, very general, something such as what are the principles of the long-term management of a patient with chronic kidney disease or renal transplant? So RJ, I wonder if you can just take us through um, the principles of the chronic management of these patients. So if you get asked about the chronic management of a patient with CKD rather than a renal transplant, um, of course, there are uh, points in that which will be uh, the same for both category of patient. But specifically with a patient with CKD, it would be, you know, follow up based on their severity of their CKD, of which there are nice guidelines to kind of not prescribe, but suggest the frequency of follow-up. So, of course, if you've got advancing CKD with CKD stage 5, you're going to see them more regularly than somebody that's got a GFR of 60. So, um, appropriate follow-up. And then I think important in terms of your management of any patient is thinking about holistic care. So, patient education, which may include discussing sick day rules with their medications, medications to avoid, specifically renal patients such as NSAIDs and patient education on lifestyle and cardiovascular health. 
the movies also specific management for the underlying etiology of their CKD. So I think, you know, if a particular diagnosis has come up during your presentation, then you can discuss that. But otherwise, I would just keep it broad and say there would be maybe specific management for the underlying etiology. You know, for example, with polycystic kidney disease, you may want to use torbaptan if the patient is, fulfills the criteria for it. Or for vasculitis, that might be immunosuppression. For diabetes, that would be treatment of the diabetes. And then it's management of the complications um, of chronic kidney disease, which I think we're going to talk about um, a little bit later. But broadly speaking, we're talking about managing cardiovascular risk because we know that chronic kidney disease alone is an independent risk factor for coronary disease or cardiovascular disease. Um, blood pressure management, appropriate use of uh, lipid-lowering agents, management of proteinuria, so ACEs and ARBs, and then, as RJ said, we're going to be talking about the um, the specifically the complications related to end stage renal disease. So, so Jim, what are the common complications of patients who have end stage renal disease? I would completely uh, follow up on what RJ said, really, which is that the priority is management of cardiovascular risk above all else. So, is the the huge increase in cardiovascular risk that you see, even with fairly modest chronic kidney disease, especially if it's associated with uh, proteinuria or, or albuminuria. Um, so, making sure patients have got excellent cardiovascular risk reduction. So, smoking cessation, uh, treatment with lipid lowering therapy uh, or antiplatelet uh, therapy where indicated tight blood pressure control, certainly with proteinuria down below 130 over 80. And those are targets that are likely to, to move as uh, as further evidence emerges. Uh, I'm sure everyone's had a look at the SPRINT study and the various uh, offshoots of that. And we may be aiming for even lower blood pressure uh, targets in the near future. And I think SGLT2 inhibitors are going to be a really important part of that story as well. If you've got a proteinuric patient, then I think the best evidence right now is for dual antiproteinuric treatment with ACE inhibitors or ARBs and uh, SGLT2 inhibitors to reduce cardiovascular disease. Um, and it, that seems to be the case even in the absence of diabetes. If I was going to pick one thing to answer, it would be management of, of cardiovascular disease. The sorts of things we maybe look at in a little bit more detail in, in specialist renal clinics, especially as you're getting into more advanced chronic kidney disease, CKD, stage four and beyond, management of renal anemia, so use of intravenous iron and uh, erythropoietin to manage uh, renal anemia, some of the metabolic consequences of advanced kidney disease as well. So uh, again, once you get into CKD stage four and beyond, uh, many patients will start to develop an acidosis, which uh, usually can be treated with uh, oral sodium bicarb, although it's not always brilliantly uh, tolerated from a GI point of view, but it seems to delay the length of time it takes people to reach end-stage renal disease. Managing fluid balance, and sometimes you start getting into fairly hefty doses of, of diuretic in order to provoke a diuresis in patients with a falling GFR. Uh, by the time you're developing complications of uremia, you know, kind of loss of appetite or developing you know, kind of serositis, pleural pericardial effusions, that sort of thing, or neuropathy, you probably just need to crack on and have dialysis rather than uh, come along and see someone in clinic every few weeks. Um, hyperkalemia, I guess, is an interesting one as well. And I can see a question in, over the next few years creeping in about um, what we've got to manage hyperkalemia and whether some of the newer potassium binders, such as uh, sodium zirconium cyclosilicate or uh, some of the resin-based binders uh, might be helpful in, in managing hyperkalemia, as well as the things we've done for some time, you know, avoiding drugs that might put your potassium up and making sure people are maintaining on a good low potassium diet and i guess the final 
part of the the big three that we uh, that we concentrate on in in uh, in renal clinic the cardiovascular the renal anemia the bone uh, side of things is the third part of that um treating mineral bone disease in, in advanced kidney disease, usually with phosphate binders to keep the phosphate in a, a relatively normal range, certainly a normal range if you're pre-dialysis or slightly higher than that range when you're on dialysis and use of activated vitamin D as well to, to treat um, emerging secondary uh, hyperparathyroidism uh, and also to maintain normal calcium levels in the, in the face of decreased calcium reabsorption and other factors that can can affect calcium homeostasis uh, in patients with kidney disease again you probably don't want me to bang on about that indefinitely and if you'd say all this in an exam by now the examiner will be dropping off (laughs) perfect and then the next thing which we're going to discuss is something which jim you touched on um just before so it might be asking you to repeat some of the things you said before but essentially the complications associated with the transplantation itself um, and RJ and I discussed the um, the complications and divided them into early and late complications and some of these things you mentioned already but um, would you mind just talking through those again for us? Absolutely so um, clinically you might not have very much to show for early acute uh, graft dysfunction either than a raised in blood test um, so if you stop all your immunosuppression uh, or something horrific happened with the, the the transplant cross match or something you'll get very uh, aggressive acute rejection with pain over the transplant and uh, maybe blood in the urine and a systemic inflammatory type response uh, but often it'll be a lot more subtle than that it'll be a raised creatinine for no obvious cause with satisfactory drug levels such as tacrolimus and the diagnosis of rejection would be made on the basis of um, the time after transplant but also importantly the kidney biopsy that I think we've already touched on Uh, and usually that can be uh, treated so when you're talking to patients in clinic and who are worried about rejection I think it's important to say that that doesn't mean this kidney's done for it just means we need to alter the medication usually by um, enhancing the immunosuppression to a degree to make sure it's 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 all treated Um, I've talked about maybe some of the slightly later complications as well I guess Uh, later on there with long-term loss of kidney transplants, there may be an immunological component, although how, how easy it is to, um, to unpick that from other things that might be going on with a, a long-standing transplant in terms of drug toxicity and recurrent disease isn't always straightforward. But rejection can still occur late, so it's worth thinking about with a kidney that starts uh, deteriorating some years after it's uh, been transplanted. We think quite a lot about um, CMV disease in our patients, especially if the patient themselves is CMV naive and is having a transplant from a CMV positive donor. Um, and so that may manifest as a general lack of well-being, but specifically you might have symptoms such as deranged LFTs and you know, an acute hepatitis with right up quadrant pain. Uh, you might have some diarrhea uh, with it. You may have fevers that don't grow anything on blood culture um, and you may have kind of pancytopenia the bloods as well so that's definitely one to look out for i think the clue there would be a, a donor a positive recipient negative uh, cmv antibody status at the time of, of transplantation okay there's some other cancers i think to think about as well so patients who are immunosuppressed will be at increased risk of uh, all the things that everybody else is so you know bowel and breast and lung and everything else we don't generally uh, recommend enhanced monitoring or surveillance beyond what is offered to the general population but it's certainly something to touch on uh, in in a, a kind of a once yearly holistic clinical review uh, with with patients with uh, with kidney transplants um skin cancer i guess is is maybe a bit of a uh, an exception there um if you've been immunosuppressed for a 
decent length of time we're talk, talking you know sort of tens of years and, and beyond skin cancers are incredibly common uh, it's it's seen with all the immunosuppression agents so i wouldn't necessarily want to pick one out there's maybe a little bit of evidence that it's more common with azathioprine than with some of the other drugs uh, and usually these are uh, lesions that that haven't um metastasized and can be uh, treated with with local therapy uh, but again really important to make sure that when you're seeing patients you're talking to them about the likelihood that they'll develop problems that they're very very careful with skin protection uh, on the three or four sunny days that we get every year uh, and some units will have a dermatology clinic uh, set aside for high-risk immunosuppressed patients to make sure they're getting full kind of mole and skin mapping on a regular usually annual basis wow what a comprehensive run through that's pretty much everything you would want to know about any sort of complication associated with renal transplants anything from infection malignancy and one of the things which has popped up from time to time is um, recurrence of original disease within a transplant. So, um, RJ, could you just tell us what, what sort of conditions are those that recur even in transplanted kidneys? Yeah, sure. Um, so I think if you're getting on to questions like this, you're doing very well, because these are the kind of questions that come up in your specialist exams particularly. But um, there are certain diseases that we tend to worry more that may recur in a graft. So FSGS in terms of glomerulonephritis is, is one that we do worry about. And now that we're finding kind of more and more information about genetic FSGS, which tend to, um, if there's a genetic abnormality in a structural protein, tend to re-recur um, less frequently uh, versus those that are not genetic. But of course, any, um, any disease such as diabetes may recur in a transplant, IgA, um, can often recur, but doesn't often result in graft failure very quickly. It's always remembering at these points, this is the kind of question where you may start panicking and try not to say silly things like polycystic kidney disease could recur in your transplant. Um, but I think you only need to give two or three examples. Do you uh, agree with that, Jim? No, I, I absolutely do. And I think if, you, if you're not going to remember two or three things and fsgs is definitely the one that scares us all really sometimes with with what can sometimes be really early uh, aggressive and sometimes devastating recurrence um only about not not everybody who has fsgs will get it but maybe 30 percent of patients will so it certainly needs to be at the forefront of your mind and then one of the things we mentioned a little earlier were the immunosuppressive medications and some of them come with uh, detectable signs as we've discussed, but then there are also additional side effects which are important to know about to demonstrate a good rounded knowledge of the management of these patients. So RJ, could you just let us know the, the as well as the signs we've discussed already, um, some of the side effects of um, the immunosuppressive medications which are commonly used to treat these patients? I think the best way to approach this question, again, um, at this point of questioning, you may be starting to lose your nerve a little bit, is start general. So if you're running out of time or you're struggling to remember things, start with all immunosuppressants or are going to increase your risk of infection. doesn't matter which, which uh, agent you use. You know, most of them will be associated with your, a slight increased risk of cancer long term. And then you can go on to um, specific uh, medications uh, if you still have time. So cyclosporin and tacrolimus are both um, calcineurin inhibitors and they have some side effects that overlap and others that are a bit more specific. So diabetes is um, or increased risk of diabetes, which is you know, more likely, particularly if you've been on steroids or pre-diabetic prior to transplantation um, and is slightly more common with tacrolimus than cyclosporin. 
both can cause a tremor and both are associated with dyslipidemia. Uh, cyclosporin specifically is associated with gingival hypertrophy um, and hair loss and neurotoxicity, such as headaches and insomnia are a bit more common with tacrolimus. But again, we're getting into minutiae. If you really want to blow the examiner's minds, you can discuss those. Um, azathioprine um, is less commonly used, but if you've got um, a much older transplant patient that you know, uh, we do see some patients or patients who've not tolerated CNIs, um, and the commonest side effects of that would be myelosuppression and pancreatitis. And then we have mycophenolate mofetone, by far the commonest side effects for patients, for patients is gastrointestinal. That may be nausea, abdominal pain, um, vomiting. It also can cause myelosuppression and sleep disturbance. Just a quick plug for our sponsors and we'll get right back to the show. Parsetest.com sponsored this episode of the Pre-Paces podcast and over at Parsetest.com they have a huge number of video cases for you to watch to really nail the renal transplant station when it comes up in your exam. They've got cases focused on patients needing dialysis, patients with a transplant or even patients with a simultaneous pancreas and kidney transplant. So to get access, go over to Parsetest.com slash Paces. That's Parsetest.com slash Paces. And then moving on to a slightly separate issue away from the medication side of things. And these are sort of quite general questions, which I found come up in terms of things you might be asked by the examiners. And I guess this is a very broad question, but Jim, one of the questions I found was at what stage would you refer a patient for renal replacement therapy? And I guess this would be in the context of chronic kidney disease rather than acute deterioration of renal function as an inpatient. Look, Sam, I think that answer is a lot less vague than it was about two weeks ago because we've just had some nice guidance on uh, management of chronic kidney disease, uh, which suggests using um, risk equation uh, formulae to help stratify patients at risk of requiring end-stage renal failure treatment in a time period. So it's usually quoted in a two-year or a five-year time frame with re- referral thresholds to specialist care, uh, depending on that risk. So uh, I think my answer to that is to have a very quick look at the latest NICE CKD guidelines, or if you can't be bothered to do that, uh, then I've got full sympathy with you. And instead, uh, just Google kidney failure risk equation, uh, and that will bring up uh, a NICE website, which uh, goes through some of it. It allows you to plug numbers in to uh, work out someone's risk of requiring renal replacement therapy therapy over a time period um, and we'll uh, we'll throw up some um, suggestions for whether and when you need to refer as well so so have a quick look kidney failure risk equation uh, I'd probably go to that first of all and have a bit of a play around so that's uh, hot news I don't know if you've got a, a big klaxon or something that you're going to add in in post uh, Sam I'll leave leave that up to you I'd say that that's very much for people with chronic kidney disease or kidney disease that tends to take a fairly predictable path if you've got someone who's got immunological renal disease somebody who's got an acute glomerulonephritis or has vasculitis uh, or has obstructive urophthy then these risk equations aren't really uh, designed for that although they're being validated in more and more groups at the moment so i think if you've got someone who's got ckd you think they've got a low-grade gn then using a risk prediction tool to help guide a referral is really important um, if you've got someone who's got rapidly deteriorating uh, renal function perhaps with blood protein in their urine 
then that's an immediate referral to uh, a nephrologist to try and work out what's going on. Now, I'd be hopeful that the PACES examiner will be familiar with these equations. So it might be worth uh, having uh, another answer as a backup. But I'm sure they're all very, uh, very well educated, aren't they? And they've read their nice guidelines. Yeah. And never fear. It's it's at this point in the podcast where I will insert a a klaxon just to reinforce the uh, significance of the uh, kidney failure risk equation. I think that's I think that's reasonable. I hereby draw to your attention the importance of the kidney failure risk equation. For more information, go to kidneyfailurerisk.com and try it out. Uh, and then moving on. So this is one question which I definitely found had come up time and time again. And me and RJ had a, had a discussion about this in the before the record as well, which is the pros and cons of hemodialysis and peritoneal dialysis. Now, I'm, I'm conscious of time in that this question could go on for a whole uh, another podcast or an hours worth of conversation. But we, we discussed in, in uh, brief detail about some important things which we mentioned, which should be mentioned to the examiner. So um, RJ, what do you think, if we focus on uh, hemodialysis um, first in terms of the pros and cons of uh, hemodialysis? I think that's um, Sam's diplomatic way of telling me to keep this short, because uh, when we chatted uh, about this, I um, was quite clear in saying that it's not as simple as stating uh, pros and cons, because you need to look at the patient in front of you and, and come to a shared decision making process of what what would be the best treatment for a patient yes there are some specific i suppose pros and cons of having hemodialysis so if you're trying to generalize hemodialysis it's um, an intermittent therapy which might be a pro for somebody not having peritoneal dialysis daily on the other hand it is um on average three sessions four hours a week um, and although we try to keep it at four hours that doesn't really include the travel time so for some people that that can be quite difficult um hemodialysis for some more elderly patients can often be better because for some that is their only social input if they're um, elderly and their relatives have all died we have some patients that say that they prefer having a um, form of dialysis that's not done as a home therapy because they get to see other people and it's the only social interaction they have and that can also be useful for example if you are quite comorbid and aren't able to cope with the home therapy at home having said that there is an increasing number of units that do assisted peritoneal dialysis for patients elderly at home but that's a conversation for another day um hemodialysis there are risks of infection although the risk of infection in bacteremia is lower with um officially than there would be with a line but the risk is not zero more cons for hemodialysis um, as already mentioned there's there's travel which um can be difficult um, if you're in very rural areas that travel might be very long um, yeah so that's probably hemodialysis in a nutshell and then um, Jim now I only chatted with RJ on the phone yesterday but um, these were the main points we had about peritoneal dialysis and, and you said before the record you had a few additional points or maybe some fine tuning to these but um, by and large, what would you say are the pros and cons of peritoneal dialysis in contrast to hemodialysis? 
I think your notes have, have got it pretty much nailed, uh, Sam. I think one big advantage is that you can put a peritoneal dialysis tube in and start the treatment quite quickly, um, sometimes immediately, certainly within within a week or two, whereas with a fistula, you've got a bit of a lead time, maybe six weeks, maybe six months before a, a fistula will be ready to use. Uh, it's gives patient a, a huge amount of independence so you can do the treatment yourself you can do it where you want to to an extent when you want to um you're not uh, beholden to dialysis units uh, moving your shifts around if you've got a, a job interview or want to go on holiday or something like that we find that patients who have home-based therapies and uh, peritoneal dialysis is the main home-based dialysis uh therapy that's offered in the UK at the moment, more activated in their healthcare. And there are certainly benefits to be had from, from patients who really buy into the treatments that they're having to undergo. And certainly thinking about the, the, the long-term side of things, if you've got a young patient who you think is going to have a transplant, they're going to have a transplant quite soon, but you want to bridge them to that point, then PD is a really good option. And maybe think about saving vascular access sites uh, for some time down the line, perhaps when, when transplantation is no longer an option. Uh, which hopefully will be many, many years down the line. It does take time. Uh, there is risk of infection, PD peritonitis, which usually could be treated uh, as an outpatient in an ambulatory way, but still needs to, to be treated. And, uh, and there is some morbidity associated with it. Uh, however, you know, I think overall, though, I think that there is a right answer to this question, uh, weirdly, which is you have a conversation with a patient, with a multidisciplinary team around you, which will include the patient, which would include dialysis nurses, it would include a, a nephrologist, an education specialist. Often that's a, a nurse specialist as well who's used to talking to people about, to people about the different modalities. Uh, it'll be discussed in the context of potential workup for kidney transplantation as well. So it's not just a hemodialysis, peritoneal dialysis uh, conversation. And ultimately, the key to this, uh, you know, for, for if, to use a bit of a buzzword, is this concept of shared decision-making, making sure between you and the patient, the other uh, specialists that, that are involved, uh, that you get a treatment that's going to work out for them uh, over the, the medium to long term. Perfect. And moving on to one of the other questions, which I think I'm just going to skip over, because actually it's a relatively short, short answer, is, when we're talking about vascular access for patients requiring hemodialysis, um, what what options are there for vascular access? And I think throughout the podcast, we've discussed um, pretty much all of them in one way or another. So um, the AV fistula, we've discussed uh, in depth during the examination part. And then RJ went into detail, particularly related to tunneled venous catheters, and then also temporary non-tunneled uh, central catheters as well. So those are sort of the, the main options for patients requiring hemodialysis. And I think, Jim, when we talked about AV fistulas at the top of the podcast, uh, you talked very briefly about possible complications. But again, this might be a examiner question, which maybe requires a more sort of formal structured answer. So what are the possible complications of, of having an AV fistula? Uh, I think the first thing you think about not necessarily the most common complication but the, the one that's going to be most immediately life-threatening is bleeding uh, so we did touch earlier didn't we about how much flow a fistula will have going through it and if you've got a fistula that's got a litre uh, per minute going through you can probably do the maths yourself to work out how long that's going to take someone to bleed to death uh, so if a fistula is cut or ruptures in a uh, outside of a, an environment where that can be easily controlled and that is a, a real, real problem. So patients are educated about that. Um, and uh, there's a, a, a bit of a um, movement at the moment to have dialysis patients carry bottle tops around with them. I don't know if that's something you've seen. So you get a bottle top, and if you've got a bleeding point on the fistula that won't settle down just with simple pressure, uh, you push the bottle top on it really hard, um, sort of you know, uh, the uh, sharp end down. Um, 
to get a really, really good point where you're going to have uh, control of your bleeding. So that that sort of thing that can that can really save lives in, in patients who've got a bleeding fistula. So uh, that's uh, both a, a complication to discuss in the exam and a bit of an extended anecdote, which you can feel free to cut out if you want to. Okay. Um, fistulas don't always work. Um, wrist fistulas, certainly somewhere between 25 and 50% of them, if they're formed in the wrist, won't work first time, may require further surgery to get them going or endovascular procedures uh, to get them done. A fistula that works well, you may, might expect to need to have some in intervention every few years. We briefly mentioned um, access grafts as well, so bits of PTFE uh, that, that will link up the artery in the vein rather than uh, native tissue, uh, and they'll require intervention maybe every year to 18 months. So coming up to hospital for procedures is definitely uh, a, a downside there. Um, and ultimately, if you've had lots of fistulas in lots of places which have had to be tied off because they become aneurysmal or they've clotted and stopped working, it's not impossible to think that you might run out of places where vascular access can be sighted. Uh, so it's worth bearing in mind that that uh, you only have a limited number of places uh, where, where you might be able to have a fistula or a graft uh, formed or, or, or put in. Now, actually, people running out of vascular access full stop is pretty unusual, uh, but worth bearing in mind. Heart failure is definitely worth thinking about, isn't it? I think, if you, again, you've got an extra two litres of cardiac output, then, and you're, you're already, as we mentioned, high risk of... Uh, of, of heart disease and heart failure, uh, then that's something that potentially could could tip people over the edge. In terms of the kind of, if you like, the vascular surgical complications, you know, um, decreased vascular supply uh, distal to, to the, the fistula, leading to the simical steel syndrome, where the hand might get cold, or you know, ultimately you might you might um, have uh, ulcers, or uh, potentially even you know good going ischemia and, and, and gangrene pretty unusual probably not something that's uh, going to take very long to discuss in an exam amazing well what a wild ride that has been through everything in a renal transplant patient i mean i know we took a long time to go through the examiner questions but it just shows it wasn't even any sort of exhaustive trying to find the numbers of or types of different questions which you could be asked so my huge thanks to uh, Jim and RJ for their help in navigating this critically important PACES station. But for now, we are going to move on to Quiz the Consultant. So welcome back to Quiz the Consultant. This is the quiz where our consultants face a 10-question quickfire quiz on a topic of their own choosing, with the caveat being that it can't be related to medicine. Now, I know we mentioned at the top of the show the um, specialist subjects, but just as a quick recap, Jim, what have you chosen as your specialist subject? I'd like to answer questions on the Marvel Cinematic Universe, please, Sam. Perfect. And is that something which you've been a fan for a long time? Uh, no, I've, I've not seen any of the films or, or, <laughs> done a, or done any background reading. So this might be a bit of a car crash, but we'll see how it goes. Do you have a particular favourite within the MCU? Um, oh, that's a really interesting question. Uh, probably the guy who played Abed in Community, who crops up, I believe, in um, Captain America Civil War. <laughs> Fantastic. And then RJ, what have you chosen as your specialist subject? Oroctolagus caniculus domesticus, also known as the domestic rabbit. Perfect. Domestic rabbits, brackets general, plus minus within popular culture slash media. Excellent. And 
we're going to be going head to head. So it's going to be one question to RJ, one question to Jim. So um, the way it works is this is how we play. It is 10 questions. If you can answer the question correctly without multiple choice options, you'll get two points. But if you're unsure, you can ask for multiple choice options and then you will get one point. Excellent. So we'll start off with RJ. Question number one, what is a baby rabbit called? A kit or a kitten. And that's correct for two points. She's on the board. Okay, moving over to the MCU, Jim. Who is credited with the creation of the vast majority of the Marvel comics over two decades and unfortunately passed away in 2018? God bless him, that'll be Stan Lee. Stan Lee is correct for two points. Back to RJ with rabbits. What is the name of the place where rabbits live? I think you are referring to uh, a warren. <laughs> that is correct. Another two points. And back to Jim. What is the name of the man who turns into the Incredible Hulk? Bruce Banner. Correct. Bruce Banner for another two points. Still two for two on both sides now. RJ, question number three. We've all heard of the phrase, at it like rabbits, but what is the approximate length of a rabbit's gestation? It's um, roughly a month, so anywhere between 28 and 35 days. And the reason I know this is because I currently have a buck and a doe, which were too small to have spayed and neutered. And we've been doing conjugal visits because they get a bit sad. And we've realised two days ago, after uh, our doe Lola Lannister <laughs> has been making a nest, um, unfortunately, it's probably been impregnated by her brother, Loki, Lannister. Correct. 30 days is what I've got. Oh, yeah, approximately a month. Back over to Jim. Doctor Strange, played by Benedict Cumberbatch, stars in a number of the MCU movies. But what type of doctor is Doctor Strange? Well, if, if you can call um, such a professional doctor, I, I, I believe he is a neurosurgeon but without the use of his hands, the irony. <laughs> Correct. Correct, and it's still three for three. Question number four, RJ. Getting a bit more difficult now. What is the largest breed of rabbit? Oh, it's the largest breed of rabbit is the Flemish giant. Some people think it's the continental giant, but that was actually bred from the Flemish giant. Oh, great additional fact there. I wish I could do bonus points, but it's just not possible. Um, it is the Flemish giant rabbit and the continental giant rabbit was one of the options as well. Jim, question number four on the MCU. What is the name of Thor's hammer, which is cast out of Asgard and lands in New Mexico? I believe it's called Mjolnir, but please don't ask me to spell it. That's all right. It's correct again. And that's four for four. Who's going to trip up first? Although I will say the next question is somewhat uh, skewed in RJ's favour because it is just a true or false. So it's two or nothing for RJ on this one. True or false? Rabbits and guinea pigs can become very good friends and often live together harmoniously. Oh, this is not true. Um, it was previously thought because they had a similar temperament and size that they would be friends because as we know, rabbits species are... Um, very social animals, but unfortunately this is not true. They often have quite aggressive behaviour together. Correct. Question number five. Jim, what is the name of Iron Man's artificial intelligence computer system? Uh, can, I, can I just ask for clarification there? Is this in the original uh, Iron Man film? Um, 
can, I, can I just ask for clarification there? Is the answer you're looking for Jarvis? Yes. I'll let okay. you have Jarvis. Correct. Excellent. Um, wow. question, question number six for RJ. Which Christian festival is often associated with a rabbit who gifts chocolate eggs? I would believe this would be Easter. Correct. And going back to Jim, and it's a double header question. What does Jarvis stand for? Um, he stands for truth, justice, and the American way. That's not going to get me the points, is it? Um, <laughs> can I can I have some uh, can I have some multiple choice options there, please, Sam? You, you, you can have the multiple choice options. So, what does Jarvis stand for? Does it stand for uh, jumping aboard righteous visual integration system? Does it stand for joint artificial rulings and violation intelligence system? Does it stand for joint adverse risk versus insurance system, or is it the just a rather very intelligent system? Um, I, th I think I'll go for B, please, whatever that was. It is, in fact, the last one, which is just a rather very intelligent system. Well, I've learned something about the MCU today, which well, is... There we go. There we go. Better than anyone who hoped to learn about nephrology. No, it's, <laughs> it's, it's fine. Let's... Okay, question number seven for RJ. Going into the popular culture side of it now, Watership Down is a well-known adventure novel by Richard Adams featuring anthropomorphized rabbits. Can you name at least one rabbit that features in the book? Hazel. I'll accept Hazel for two points. Back to the MCU. Which villain is responsible for the original formation of the Avengers? Hmm, you can see me thinking. It doesn't make for a great podcast, does it? Me, <laughs> me sitting there scratching my chin. Um, uh, I'll say Loki. It was Loki for two points. He took the risk and it was and it was worth it. And question number eight for RJ. We're all familiar with Bugs Bunny as the face of the Looney Tunes, but what is the name of Bugs Bunny's girlfriend? Oh, Lola Bunny. It is Lola Bunny. And question number eight for Jim. Which of the Avengers can also wield Thor's hammer? Well, I've got, there may be more than one one answer here. So certainly in uh, Avent Avengers Endgame, which I'm sure we'd all agree is a high watermark for uh, early 21st century entertainment, uh, Captain America uh, wielded it in battle. I, I believe uh, Vision uh, wielded it uh, earlier on in, in Age of Ultron as well, but I guess not in a combat situation. So uh, I'll probably, probably give this one to Steve Rogers himself. Yeah, and I will accept the answer. Captain America first, which is correct. RJ, question number nine. Who famously wrote about many animals, including rabbits, with notable examples being the tale of the Flopsy Bunnies, the tale of Benjamin Bunny, and the tale of Peter Rabbit? Beatrix Potter. Correct. Jim, <laughs> question number nine. Who played, so which actor, portrayed the most recent incarnation of Spider-Man in the MCU. Well, I think that's, isn't that young Tom Holland? That's correct. Tom Holland is correct. And question number 10, this is RJ for 100%. Which organization and publication founded by Hugh Hefner is famous for scantily clad females dressing up as rabbits? I believe that would be Playboy. And that's correct. She's got the hundred percent mark, but Jim can salvage some salvage some pride with this final question, which is about Captain America. Question number ten: 
In the Captain America origin story, Steve Rogers was injected with a body-altering serum during which conflict? Well, I'm, 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 I'm disappointed that it's not for the win, but I believe it was World War Two. That's World War Two, And it was World War Two. And can I say, the standard of quizzing was so exceptionally high, but it is RJ who just nicks it from Jim Moriarty. And I have to pay you both huge respect for your respective knowledge on both rabbits and the mcu both extremely broad and extremely deep topics to write quizzes for rj but- that was remarkable well done <laughs> i'd like to say that's the height of my professional career <laughs> let's 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 stop before it gets worse so guys i have to pay huge thanks both to um, dr ravata jane and dr jim moriarty both experts in the field of nephrology who have been kind enough to give up a huge portion of their time to prattle on about critically important paces subjects of renal transplants. So RJ, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And Jim, condolences about the old quiz result, but no doubt uh, we'll have to get you back again sometime in future for another quiz the consultant. But thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Thank you, Sam. And we are just about out of time for uh, this episode of the Pre-Paces podcast. It's always a pleasure to bring you these episodes where we've got such high caliber guests to come on, discuss these interesting and important topics. Don't forget, if you really enjoy the show, you can like, follow and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's on Apple, Spotify or wherever else you choose to listen. If you really enjoy listening, please feel free to head over to wherever you listen and give us a five star review. But today leaves us just about out of time on this critically important topic of renal transplantation so we will see you next time on the pre-paces podcast